Amen. Hey, don't go anywhere yet. Okay. Scott didn't know what's going to happen. He also don't, don't need to be afraid. Last week, Scott shared when he preached that the passage I had given to him was incredibly difficult and a huge struggle. Um, and I just want to say, one of my joys in being here at Calvary is that we have a team of people who teach and preach the Word. We're always kidding each other about the passage that we give each other, that we kind of stick each other with. And the reality is, we both really love the Word. And we also preach the Word in such a way that when we are preparing messages, it hurts. And last week, Scott shared that, and it got personal. And I just wanted to say thank you, uh, because it's my turn this week. Yes, sir. <laughs> so it is my turn. And I just want to say uh, thank you for that, so you can have a seat. Um, <laughs> we do. We, we love the Word here. Um, what's that? Oh, and yes, kids, they can head back. Thanks to my wife, who is the reminder of all good things. Um, <laughs> so kids, uh, kids can head back to their classrooms back there. Um, and just remember, say a prayer for the teachers, because it's crazy. Um, but let me just say, let me just say that I love, I love that, that Scott and I keep talking about getting thrown under the bus, because the reality is, is that it's God who throws us under the bus. It is God who has picked out the passages that we are going to speak on any given week. It is his sovereignty over it. This is his church. And one of the hard things I have had to learn as the pastor of this church is that it is not my church. No matter how many times I want to think of it as my church, the Lord's like, no, it's my church. We're going to do things my way. And it hurts. It's uncomfortable sometimes. But here's the deal, church. We are the Lord's. This church is the Lord's. His word covers over us. We are his servants, and we are all meant to be his people. We belong to the Lord, this church. And I pray and I hope that every single one of us in this room right now belongs to the Lord as well. Belonging to the Lord is, is heart and soul and the key to what we're going to be talking about today. But let me just go to a question that I think is begged when we talk about us being the Lord's, and that is, whose is my life? Whose is my life? Who does my life belong to? This is a, a, an important question. It's one that, honestly, I think everybody, but really every Christian really needs to ask as they look at themselves and they consider themselves. It's the question, whose are you? To who you do you belong? The trouble is most of us are red-blooded Americans and my life is mine, amen? But it's not. 1 Corinthians 6.20 tells us that we were bought with a price. Now here's the deal. If I go to the store and I buy something, whose is it? It's mine. So there we were, destined to hell, destined to death for all eternity. And Jesus Christ paid his blood, gave his life so that I could live. He rescues me out. Whose am I? I'm his. I'm his. We were bought with a price. Our ransom was paid. We who are his are actually his. And that's a problem for some of us because we really like being our own. For some of us, this is actually the very reason why they have not given their life to Jesus. See, some of us know when, when we read through Scripture and we, we, we hear I guess pastors like myself talk and preach, we, we come to realize intuitively, all right, if I give my life to Jesus, then it's not my life anymore. And I, I like my life. I like holding on to my life. I want control. I am not going to give it to him. For some of us who are Christians, that's the story of a long, long set of years before the Lord finally broke us down and showed us that that was a beautiful thing, not a terrible thing to give our lives to him. If you're here today and you have not given your life to Jesus because you like your life, because you like what you do, you like how you spend your time, and God forbid you love your sin, then my prayer for you today is that you would see what it is like to really be, be bought and owned by the most gracious and powerful king that could ever be. Some of us, though, are Christians who are in this room right now, and we're also in the same place, though we've given our life to Jesus and we've been like, all right, Jesus, have my life to save me. 
But what we've done is we've said, save me, but I'm going to hold on to as much as I can grab and grasp. We say, Jesus, you can have all of me but this. I was on sabbatical for three months by the gracious gift of this church and the glory of God, really, um, not to mention uh, Scott. <laughs> a lot of you have asked uh, what I learned, what happened, and, and, and it's been a hard thing to answer that question. Because, I mean, how do you sum up three months of being alone with God and, and being able to focus on my family in a different way than I usually can and all this into like, hey, here's a three-minute snippet without making you feel really uncomfortable. Because the reality is when you spend that much time with the Lord, it's really uncomfortable. There was one week in particular that the Lord and I had a week-long argument. Because he looked at me and he said, he said, whose are you? And I said, well, I'm yours. He said, no, you're not. No, you're not. I mean, I've got your salvation, and I've got this piece of you, and I've got that piece of you, but I want this and this and this. And I said, Jesus, just take what you want. And he said, no, you give it all to me. You give it all to me. And I will give you back what I think is best for you. And I said, Lord, I don't like that. I literally had a week-long argument with the Lord, just back and forth, and there's nobody else to talk to. I was alone in the mountains by myself. And so guess what? The Lord and I spoke out loud and argued for a week. And he said, whose are you? I said, I'm yours, Lord. I said, no, you're not. And church, I just want to ask you the same question today. You haven't had a whole week to think about it. You haven't had, had uh, months in the scriptures and all this time that, that I had to be honest about it. And there's all kinds of people around distracting you from the answer. But I want you to be honest with you, with yourself and with the Lord today. Whose are you? Are you his or are you yours? We're in the book of James. And we've been looking at a whole lot of pride and a whole lot of arrogance for the last month. In fact, that actually sums up kind of this whole section that we're in, pride and arrogance. Last week, Scott brought us into a passage about slandering one another based on our pride, based on who we think we are. It actually comes down to condemning the law itself. The week before that, we talked about the arrogance of being double-minded, of living for God in word, but not in deed, that we think we know better than he does. Before that, we looked at the arrogance of the wisdom of this world, that, that living in jealousy and selfish ambition is a good thing, but we Christians, we need to live in the wisdom of the kingdom, which is about humility and laying it all down. And even before that, we looked at the arrogance of the tongue, the pride that leads to the inflaming of ourselves and others that causes wars and fights and quarrels. I want you to know that if you think you can hold on to yourself while giving parts of you to Jesus, you are the most arrogant person I have ever met. And I am too. Right? If we hold on to any part of our lives as we offer them to Jesus, it's because we think we can do better with them than him. Can you honestly say with your lips, with your mouth, that you can do better at anything than Jesus Christ? It is arrogance that causes us to hold on. I've got this. I can do better with this. So let's see what God has to say about this. Now I'll tell you, I'm fired up right now because the Lord has destroyed me again this week. Because when you have an argument a month and a half ago, you do your best to kind of push that aside, and then the Lord does what? He brings the passage that's going to land this all for me all over again. He said to me again this week, Matt, whose are you? I said, I'm, I'm, I'm yours, Lord. And he said, no, you're not. And here we are in James. So James, uh, we're going to James chapter 4, the end of James chapter 4. See if I can ever turn there. <laughs> and here's what's written. It says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend there a year and trade and make a profit. 
Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Now, just real quick in this, James is bringing up a a group of people who are making plans and and setting up their life and, and thinking about what their future is. Trouble is they're doing it without any thought to the Lord. This is pandemic to the church. Now, we've all been through a pandemic. (laughs) Some of us think it was a pandemic. Some of us don't think it was a pandemic. Some of us think it was a made-up pandemic. Who knows? I will tell you what is actually a pandemic is Christians who profess Jesus Christ but think they can continue to live for themselves. That's pandemic. And it is a bigger disaster than COVID ever will be. Do you know COVID doesn't have the capacity to cause someone to go to hell for eternity? The pandemic I'm talking about does. On the other hand, COVID cannot give us eternal life. And what we're talking about today can. It can. It can give us life forever. So the question that we're going to be looking at today is who is in control of your life? Who is in control of your life? I think all things kind of rest on this in the end, on this question, who's in control of your life? It's either going to be you or it's going to be Jesus Christ. I mean, you can insert all kinds of other things for you. I mean, if you're young, maybe you think your parents are in control of your life. Uh, Newsbreak, they're not. You might think your boss has control of your life, and maybe nine to five, your boss has some control of your life, but he doesn't control your life. Your teachers, your professors at college, nope. Either we do, or Jesus does. What we're going to see in our passage today is that there are two answers possible. So let me put the first answer. into uh, first person so that I might emphasize this. I try to throw myself into this always first. I am, as Paul has said, the chief of all sinners. I think we all are the chief of all sinners because we're all really close to our own sin. I'm a bigger sinner than you, Dan, man, because I see my sin way more than I see yours. I hope you also think you're a bigger sinner than me because same thing, right? Either I believe and live as if I am the master of my universe. Or I believe and live live as if God is the master of my universe. Either I believe and live as I am in charge, I am in control, I rule my destiny, or I believe and live that God is in charge and in control and the ruler of my destiny. Now Christian, which of these do you suppose you should be? This is a simple question, a simple answer, any way to a complicated question, I guess. First, we're going to look at what it means that we think we are in control. We're going to start with what the Bible says here, verses 13 through 14. James writes, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. He says, look, you who say. Now, real quick, does it matter what they say? I mean, no. (laughs) Not in the end. What we say, we have learned from the book of James over the last four weeks, is actually a sign of where our heart is. We can say all kinds of things. The real question is, where is our heart in all of this? What James is saying is that there's a group of people, he's talking to them specifically. Maybe he's talking to you. I know this week he was talking to me. Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. All right, some of us are quickly going to say, well, wait a minute, what's wrong with that? Well, nothing's wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with making plans. There's nothing wrong with setting up a business trip. There's nothing wrong with ambitions of, of making some money. But the question is, is where is your heart? What James is looking at is not a group of people who are just interested in making their own plans and in making some money and investing in those sorts of things. What James is interested in a group of people who want to do so without any thought to what God wants them to do. 
Right? They've got their sights set. This is what I'm doing. But meanwhile, God may have other plans. The problem is not with the words, right? If I, if I say, all right, after church today, I've got a meeting, and then I'm going to go home then for a little while, and then I'm going to meet with someone and all this, right? There's no heart problem there. And when I'm thinking about it, I'm thinking about it in terms of what the Lord wants me to do. And that's true for all of us, I think. The heart that James is showing us here is one that cannot fail, right? This is a heart of pride. They're saying, hey, look, I'm going to go do this thing. I'm going to go on this trip. I'm going to come back wealthy and rich. Really? How do you know? Who's in control of your life, right? They move forward. They say, I'm going to be successful. I'm good at what I do. I'm skilled. You may even say, hey, I've got the past experience that, that when I go on such and such kinds of business trips, I'm going to come back really happy and really good and really wealthy. All right, well, what if your plane crashes? Are you going to come back at all? What if you get there and you insult the person that you are meeting with and they turn you away empty-handed and you've spent a fortune on this trip and come back not only empty-handed but with less than you had? This is the point James is making. These people are so confident in who they are and what they have that they're just marching forward without any thought to what else might happen, to what else God is doing. It's all rooted in self. Here's what this looks like for us here at church. We are passionate about Jesus on Sunday, but the rest of the week, we mostly think he is unconcerned with what we do and how we do it. All right, we are the loudest person on Sunday morning. It's probably me. But the rest of the week, we don't give one thought to what Jesus wants from our day, from our family, from our life, from our work. But remember, we, we started with this idea that he has bought us. He is going to be concerned with every part of us. Every part. See, these people in the passage here, and I fear us too in many ways, we tend to keep God in this box, right? We have said, all right, here's my God box, and here's the things that go in my God box. But then we usually have things that don't go in our God box, right? So I may, I may keep my wife in my God box because I know as a good Christian man that if I'm going to love my wife well, I need to love God first. And I put my wife in that God box so that I can love her well too. I put my kids in the God box because that just makes sense too. I would murder them if it wasn't for the grace of Jesus. Okay, we, we, and we, we put all these things in the God box, but what do we keep out? We keep our jobs out. Right? We keep how we do our jobs out. We keep our friends out. I mean, we've got friends in this world that are, like, just tearing us down and keeping us from Jesus. We put our hobbies outside of the God box a lot. It's like, you know, I really love my video games. I really love my Netflix. I really love just chilling and doing nothing. Whose are we? That's the question. On Sunday morning, we give a trifle to the tithe, to the offering. And the rest of the week, we buy coffee and soda and toys and whatever else it is that we spend our pleasures on. Is your money in the God box or is 1% of your money in the God box? Here's the deal, guys. If Jesus is not the Lord over all of your life, then Jesus is not the Lord of your life. Because if you have any control over it, then he's not Lord. He's not in charge. If you can say, all right, Jesus, this piece, but not this piece, then you're still the Lord of your life. You're still in charge. And what's to stop you from simply grabbing the rest of it that you've already given to him and being like, all right, I want that back. We either make Jesus the Lord of our life or not at all. Why in the world would we trust Jesus to save our eternity if we're not willing to give him an hour on Monday night? Or three minutes of porn on Tuesday night? Why in the world would we trust him for eternity if we're willing to hold on to every other part of ourselves? There's an arrogance in thinking that we can do this better. 
I've already said that. But I also fear that for the Christian, there actually may be something else going on. Something far more nefarious, far more dangerous. See, the tone is going to change in James chapter 5. And different people disagree on this, but whether or not the beginning of James chapter 5 is written to wealthy Christians or wealthy people in general... But the tone is going to be pretty heavy at that point. Scott's got the blessing of that one next week. This week, though, and nobody argues, everybody thinks that who James is writing to is Christians. Christians who have decided that they can give their life to Jesus but hold on to as much of it as they can for their own desire. But see, what we land in here then is the very subtle and wicked arrogance that, that we have a tendency to fall into. And our culture, people in this world today, um, particularly because of a certain section of preachers, if I can say that right, um, in the world. We walk out of the door to every endeavor that we head into quoting these three verses. Matthew 19, 26. With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. We quote Philippians 4, 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Then we look to Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good to them that love God to them who are called according to his purpose. Now I will tell you, those three scriptures are powerful and beautiful and wonderful. And if you live by them, amen. The trouble is far too often we quote them as we walk out the door to do our own things. We, we quote them to ourselves to remind us that as I go off to this business trip or play this sports game or whatever else it is, man, that God's got me and I'm going to do this and be successful. We have a tendency, and this is why it's so dangerous as Christians, to basically walk out of the door thinking, all right, God's got me and got me in this and we're going to be a success. The number of Christians that I have met who just assume that because they are Christians, their life will be good and prosperous is scary. We're taking the truth of God and we're twisting it. TV preachers tell us all the time that God wants us to be successful, to prosper, but they ignore the fact that God's biggest priority for us is not happiness. It is holiness. And that for the Christian, joy which is so much better than happiness, comes through seeking holiness in God alone, in Christ alone. The clear teaching of Scripture is actually that suffering, not success, produces the character in us that God desires for us. Personal failure produces faith in God who can actually make it happen. Church, the more often that I fail as I try, the more often I am tempted and do in fact turn to God to rescue me. It is not success that causes us to fall in love with God. It is our own failure in realizing that he is everything we need. James said this in, in chapter 1. He said, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The Apostle Paul says it too in Romans 5, Not only that we rejoice in our sufferings, Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Friends, there is a clear arrogance when we ignore God and think we are in control. There's a far worse arrogance when we think that God is our servant to give us good things. That we think because we are his, that he is going to bless every work of our hands. That our lives are going to be peachy and happy and healthy. Now they might be. And if God blesses you with that, amen. On the other hand, if he doesn't, what are you going to do? I have seen so many people walk away from the faith because a preacher up front told them, man, if you give your life to Jesus, everything will be, will be pumpkins and roses. Right, everything will be, it'll just be walking through a blissful field. 
Do you know who, who's in trouble for saying those things? The preacher. That's what it tells us in James chapter 3. Be careful, you who endeavor to be preachers. You will be judged more severely. Jesus says, if any of you would lead the little of these who believe away, what happens? It is better that a millstone be tied around the neck and thrown in the sea. There are times when I leave church on Sunday morning and I'm like, Lord, why must I say really hard things over and over and over again? Church, I promise to you to keep saying really hard things over and over and over again because I do not want to lead any of us astray. So what we see here is these people think they're in control of their lives. And on the one hand, they're not thinking about God, but maybe just on the other side, because they are thinking about God, they're like, all right, God's going to bless this. God's got this. And that's what we see. On the side of control, whose are you? Whose are you? James is demonstrating that it is possible to be a Christian, but think, make decisions, and plan like God is not in control. And as we're going to see in just a minute, that's not the way it should be. That's not the way it should be. We're going to see that in just a minute. He uses the word ought. It's, he says this is how you ought to say, what you should say. Before we get there, though, let me give you some really good news. All right, I hope that I'm a preacher who brings really hard things, but then brings the gospel every single time. We are a people because of who Christ is, not because of who we are. We are a people because of who Christ is that believe that our thinking can change. We believe that if you are someone who has given part of your life to Jesus, but not all of it, that it's not too late to give the rest of it. We are people because of who Christ is that believe that transformation is possible, that he can make us into something new. Man, you ask people in the world, hey, can people change? What's the answer they give you? No, people are pretty much what they are, who they are once they get to a certain age. It's who they're going to be forever. I don't buy it. I don't buy it. Partially because I've just seen that it's not true. Because I have seen people over the age of 60, over the age of 80, give their life to Jesus and become new. I've seen young people who were set on a certain track give their life to Jesus and start thinking differently. We are not a people that think we are stuck, but we are a people that believe, as the scripture says, that we should be conformed, should not be conformed to this world, but that we should be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We believe that by the renewing of our minds, the transformation in our thinking, we can actually know what God wants us to do. And that is really good news for the rest of this sermon. Because isn't that what this whole thing is about, the will of God, about doing what he wants us to do? And so maybe you're sitting here thinking, you know what, I, I have been on my own, I've been doing this on my own, I have been arrogant, I have been holding on to parts of me and bits of me and lots of me, not giving it over. Well, guess what, church? Today is the day to change that. And yeah, you don't have the week I had sitting in the Lord alone of the mountains. You got to go back to work tomorrow or later today or whatever else. You've got things to do. Guess what? This is the most important thing you can focus on right now. If you're sitting there thinking, man, I need this. I got to stop holding on. Today is the day. And we're going to see that as we move forward as well. All right, church, we've taken a look at what it looks like to believe and live as if I am the master of my universe, as if I am in control. So what is the other side? The other side is thinking and living in the sovereignty of God. Thinking and living in the sovereignty of God. If you're taking notes, write that down. Thinking and living in the sovereignty of God. And here's what James says. Verse 15. He says, Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. All right? He says you ought to to say, now remember, is this about what we say? No. It is about how we live. It is about what's coming out of our hearts. Right now, what we say often has an effect on that. 
Some of you have looked at me really weird over the last five years as I've been a pastor here. You've said, hey, um, can we meet this week on such and such a time? Carol does this all the time. Um, and she looks at me weird when I respond, if the Lord wills. <laughs> I don't know. That's seven days away. That's five days away. I don't know if I'll be here. I don't know if there's going to be a pastoral emergency that morning and I'm going to be in the hospital instead of having a nice coffee with somebody working through discipleship material, which is where I'd kind of rather be. <laughs> right? There are, there's, there's a healthiness to recognizing and with our words saying, you know what, if the Lord wills, yeah. I mean, I'm in for that if, if the Lord allows it. If the Lord wants me to be there, then I will be there. It's not flakiness. It's recognizing that he is sovereign and he is in control. See, it's not about our heart, though. We don't always have to say and respond that way. If we do, it gets obnoxious. Right? If every time, and I don't do it every time, do I, Carol? If every time Carol comes to me and says, hey, can we, or can we meet, or we do this, and I say every single time, I'm like, well, if the Lord wills, I'll let you know that morning, which really might just be code for, I'll see if I feel like it. Right? That, that, that's not healthy. You can make plans, you can say you're going to do something and mean if the Lord wills. The beautiful thing about church people is that we should all be really gracious. There should never be a time we make plans with one of us here in this room. We at dinner or a coffee meeting or whatever else and something comes up, we say, hey, look, I, I've got a place I need to be. Right? My kid is sick. Or this. There should just be grace unending over that because we understand that we're not our own. There might be a time when I'm late to a meeting with one of you. Why? Because the meeting beforehand just took too long. Because God was doing something powerfully and I'm on his schedule, not yours. And I hope you can have grace with me in that. I'll have grace with you if that's the case too. You know, if you're on your way to meet with me and you stop and pick up a hitchhiker and share the gospel with them and they become Jesus, you know the first thing we're going to do when you sit down with me, whether it's then or an hour or a week later, is rejoice. Okay? If we really are his, then we should be really open to who knows what happening at any time. Philip was on the road traveling when he overheard somebody reading the book of Isaiah and he thought, hey, I should say something to him. I talked to him. And, and 45 minutes later, the guy is giving his life to Jesus and being baptized on the side of the road. Philip was God's, not his own. He had places to be. But he got interrupted. All right, so what we ought to say, this is why we're here. We ought to say, we ought to think, we ought to believe that at any moment God might do something else with us. We also might ought to believe that we may or may not even be here. How amazing would it be, Carol, if I didn't show up for a meeting because Jesus came back? How sad would it be if I didn't show up for a meeting because I was dead? But the Lord is sovereign over it all, isn't he? We're going to come back to that. So we ought to say if the Lord wills. Right? That comes back to that will. To, what does God will for us? That we would be holy, that we would grow in him. In the minute, moment it might change. Okay, we will live or do this or that. What I want to do as we come into this section is look at three truths that we can think about for ourselves and for life as we move forward. What does it mean to live and know and speak like God is actually in control? Here's the first one. Here's a statement that we might make to ourselves often. I thought about having all of us repeat these, say them out loud, some good affirmations of who we are, but we're not going to do that because I'm not that guy on TV that makes people do that. So maybe you might just say this in your head, in your heart. Maybe you don't believe it now, but here's the deal. I want you to desperately believe this, because there is a powerful and glorious, beautiful truth in this. Here it is. I am a vapor. I am a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes. And some of us read that, and, and it terrifies us. I read that and I think, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. 
See, Jewish wisdom, which James comes out of the Jewish wisdom literature, Jewish wisdom is all about this idea that we are a vapor, we are a mist. It's all about humility, right? Who are we? Well, in comparison to God, I am nothing. The ESV looks at this question here. When it translates earlier on, if you go with me back to verse 14, he says, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Or we don't know what tomorrow will bring. He then says, what is your life? ESV translates that, that as a question. What is your life? The CSB actually makes it a statement that begs a question. The CSB says what your life will be. That you don't know what your life will be. Either way, there's a question involved in that. Who are you? What are you? The answer is I'm a mist. And that's a gift from the Lord. Do any of us really know what our life will be? How many of you know how many days you have left on this, on this earth? Some of us, it's less than others. And not necessarily because some of us are older than others. We've all lost people before they, or we think they should have gone. Young people, car accidents, cancer. We don't know how many days we have left. This is important. We don't know how many days we have left. Here's another thing we don't know about our life to come. We don't know what the quality of life will be. And I'm a young guy, pretty physically fit. I, I have about a million activities that I love doing, things that I endeavor towards. But I don't know if three days from now I'll be able to do any of them. Remember, there's a tragic car accident. I come out paralyzed. Am I ever going to hike again? Am I going to be able to do the woodworking stuff that I love to do? Am I going to be able to go biking with my kids? Or am I going to sit in a chair for the next 60 years when my wife takes care of me? I don't know. What will your life be? Answer that question for me right now and you can be in control of your own life. Or maybe just maybe with me turn to Jesus and make him the Lord of our lives because he knows not only how many days we have left but what those days are going to look like. And if you get stuck in a wheelchair for the rest of your life, Dan, what are you going to do with it? Are you going to use it to glorify the Lord and to show how good he is in struggle and perseverance? Or are we going to clam up inside of ourselves and be depressed and hide from the world? I'll tell you what, if God is in control of your life, there's only one option in there. Joni Erickson Tata, young woman, Star athlete, prime of her life, paralyzed. What does she spend the rest of her life doing? Praising Jesus, speaking about Jesus, telling everybody she can find about how awesome Jesus is. Church, I just want to say this real quick. I don't want to dwell here. We'll come back to this, I'm sure, someday. Uh, some of us are in the business of wasting our days. Some of us are in the business of wasting our pain and our problems. We are in the business of wasting the quality of life that we have. We're in the business of that. We spend all of our days wasting our time and wasting the, the struggles and the problems that we have. And yet we have a God that can take the worst of anything, whether that's we die or that our quality of life is hard and difficult and he can make something awesome out of it. Nicholas Ludwig, Count von Zinzendorf, I practiced that too, man. All right, Nicholas Ludwig, Count von Zinzendorf, there it is. Australia, uh, Austrian nobility in 1700 said these simple words. These are my motto in life. Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. That's my ambition. <laughs> in 80 years, Unless I manage to write a book, or unless there's a video of me on YouTube still, if that's even a thing, 
Do you know how many people remember me? My kids. Maybe my grandkids at that point, if the Lord so blesses me to live that long. Right? Preach the gospel, die, be forgotten. This is what it means to be Christian, to be a vapor. What else are you going to spend your vapor on? Right? Whether you live another three days or another 10,000 days or another 50 years or whatever the math works out to be, what are you going to be? I mean, we need to remember that we're just a vapor. We're around for a little bit and then we vanish. What is our life while we're a vapor going to be? We're going to waste it? We're going to use it for the one thing that is eternal, the kingdom of God. I'm a vapor, a vapor that appears a little time and then vanishes. All right, here's the second truth we need to just know if we're going to live and, 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 and let God be in control in, the, in his own sovereignty, okay? Number two, Jesus is Lord, not only of my living, but also of my every day. He's also the, true, the, the, the Lord of our dying as well, but I'm not getting into that right now. Jesus is Lord, not only of my living, but also of my every day. Verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. All right. Of my living, right? He brings us to life. He keeps us living. Or what we do, this and that. That is the sum total of every waking moment of the rest of our lives. He is Lord of them. What does this mean? This means our daily breath. I love getting the reminder from some of you officer. I say, hey, how are you doing today? You're like, I'm breathing. And it's a gift from the Lord. Young guys need to hear that. We don't want to hear it. We think you're really annoying when you say that. You are. But we need to hear it. Because we don't, young guys, young women, kids, right? We don't think when we wake up, oh, praise the Lord, I'm breathing today. I long for the day when I get to wake up and I think, man, Lord, you got me through one more night. I imagine that'll happen sometime in the next 10, 15 years, if the Lord wills, if the Lord lets me live that long. All right, our very breath, the very idea that we breathe, the Bible tells us that God is in control of all these things. He holds all things together. That includes our very breath. All right, not only our very breath, our very living, but our salvation. Right, when the Bible tells us that he is sovereign over our salvation, he is sovereign over whether or not we, we live eternally or not. He is in charge. And praise the Lord that he is. I've got to tell you, if it was solely up to me, I would be off running around doing who knows what. But rather than that, God reached down into my life and rescued me when I didn't care one lick about him. And he drew me to himself. And that's the story of all of us. Most of us, if any of us, right, we were not like, all right, let me find God. This will be great. No, we were off doing our own thing and God busted into it and said, come with me. That's what you see in the, the, the apostles' lives, the, the early disciples. Right there they are fishing in a boat and Jesus says, hey guys, come with me. They're not looking for him when he says, come with me. And what happens? They follow him and something amazing happens. Jesus Christ is in charge of our life, our eternal life. Romans 14, 7 through 8 says this, For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Whose are you? Whose are you? All right, so that's our life. How about our this or our that, our every day? This is fun. If we are his, is there anything in your doing that Jesus doesn't care about, that Jesus does not want to be involved in? Now I will tell you, this right here is where my argument with the Lord began. <laughs> okay? This is where my argument with the Lord began. Some of this will be visible. Some of this is not me. But I'm being broad because I want to try to hit all of us. 
right? If Jesus really is Lord of our lives, is there anything in your life that he doesn't care about? Let me ask you a question. Does Jesus care how often you brush your teeth? Serious question. Yes. Here's the thing. My dad just paid more money than a year of college for me back when I went to college to get his mouth fixed. Man, he did that. You know what I started doing? I started brushing my teeth way more often. I only got one set of these, right, Randy? <laughs> I, could po- point, I could poke a few of us. Randy's just okay for it. Okay? I mean, it's just stupid, and it's simple, but it proves a point. Stewardship of what God has given us. Now, if you've already lost your teeth, that's, that's okay. God can redeem you too. Okay? But just think about it. God cares about the stewardship to which we care for our teeth. The stewardship to which we care for our bodies. Does God care what time you go to sleep at night? Yes. I mean, here's the deal. If I go to bed at 2 in the morning because I was playing video games, and the next day is miserable for me and anybody else around me, guess what? I've sinned against the Lord. That day was his, not mine, to waste. Amen? All right, so our bedtime, God cares about. Our diet, God cares about. Our spare time, God cares about. Here's a cool story. Let me share something this, that, that happened to me this week. I was at somebody's house, some, a family in our church, visiting them this week, sitting there talking and just being, trying to be encouraging, as, as I do. And suddenly one of our church people showed up to help that family. I was like, man, this is awesome. What are the chances, first of all, that the, like, the house I'm already at, encouraging and trying to be around, somebody else shows up to? I mean, I made a few visits this week. So cool. How do you use your spare time? This person used their spare time to take care of someone. What do we do with our spare time, all right? What decisions do we make about alcohol and other drugs? Is it our body or is it his body? Is the hangover we have on the next day something he wants us to have? All right, how about this one? Our sex life, whether we're married or not. What does that look like? Does God care about who and how and when and etc.? How about this? How about our jobs? Does God care what job you have? Does God care how you do your job? Our friends, does God care about who we spend time with? Does God care whether or not we take opportunity with friends who don't know him to share the gospel with them? Church, we could literally just keep going. Now, some of you are already sitting here thinking, man, this pastor has gone from preaching to meddling. The pastor moves from preaching to meddling any time that you have an area of your life that you think doesn't belong in the God box and the pastor puts it in the God box. If you're uncomfortable right now, that's a sign that there is something outside the God box that needs to be inside of it. Because we're his. He bought us with his blood. What are we doing holding it back? And he wants it all. I want to tell you, God's been meddling in my life for years. I'm just sharing the joy with you. <laughs> All right, here's the third truth. It is sin to know what to do and not do it. This, is, this right here, I got to tell you, is where the heaviness gets big because we just put everything in the God box, right? We just took every part of our lives and started thinking, oh man, I've got something to do or not do now because of what we're talking about. Well, then we get to verse 17, and here's what it says. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Oh, man. Did you know that there are sins that are sin for you and not for me? There are sins that are, all, that are sins for everybody. But there's also a level of sins that is sin for you and not for me or for me and not for you. 
What we do with things like maybe drugs and alcohol, or particularly alcohol, drugs, let's just stay away from those. Right, some people can have a beer, and it's not a problem. For some of us, if we smell a beer, we have a problem. Right, for someone who, who might be able to drink a beer and not have an issue, it's like drinking a soda to them. Then you have other people who it would be absolutely terrible if they did. Right? The thing is, is that because you know it's a sin for you, or you believe it's a sin for you, it is. Because the moment you do it, you're in rebellion against God. The moment you do it, even if it's not in a list, even if pastor can do it and you can't, it is sin. Or the pastor can't do it and you can. <laughs> okay? Verse 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. See, what we're doing is we're actually seeing the heart of these people James is talking about again right here. Remember, this is our hearts probably. Right, here's a group of people who think they've got their life in their own control. So what are they doing? They're going off, they're going to go on a business trip, and they're going to wait to do the things they know they need to do. Right, I'll get to it. I'll get around to it. Right, I've got this business trip. I'm going to be gone about a year and a half. When I get back from that, man, that's when I'm going to work on this thing. Oh man, I've got this thing going on at work. As soon as that's done, I will think about my relationship with Jesus. Man, my kids really need me, but man, I, I've got this other stuff I gotta do. For he who, is, who knows what to do and doesn't do it, it is sin. You've got a group of people here who are Christians, or calling themselves Christians in some way, who are basically like, all right, I've got a spiritual to-do list, and I'll take care of it later. Really? What happens if there's no later? What happens if there's no later? I mean, I've met people who, who have literally told me, man, I believe in Jesus. I believe the Bible's true. I believe that Jesus will save me from my sins. And, and I will get around to it, to following him. Really? When? Is that right, or, right after or right before the car accident? <laughs> when? Salvation. People put off getting saved. Here's another thing we put off. Our calling. Man, we meet people, we know people who are like, man, the Lord has called me to such and such. I'll, I'll get around to it. Or I've got some things to do first. I've got to get my kids a little bit older, right? I've got, I've got to do my job. I can tell you, if God calls you to something, you say no, let's wait. It's going to be a miserable waiting period. It is every time. All right, how about simple obedience things? I say simple not because they're easy to do, but because I can say them really clearly. Number one, tithing. All right, when I get my finances in order, I'll tithe. When I get my money together, then I will give to the Lord. When I have a surplus, I will give to the Lord. I've never seen that actually happen. Jesus praises the widow who gives pennies. Jesus doesn't need our money, but he wants our hearts, and so often our money is attached to our hearts. Okay, how about sharing the gospel with someone who's lost? I got to tell you, how many times have I said, all right, I, I will get around to it, right? I, when the opportunity creates itself, then I will go and talk to my neighbor about Jesus. What if my neighbor gets hit by a bus before I get the chance? Now here's the balance. We believe in a sovereign God who's in absolute control. That doesn't take us off the hook for the things we're called to do and don't do. All right, how about reading the Bible? Man, all right, when I have enough time, I'll read the Bible. When I wake up early enough, I will read the Bible. When I'm not too tired at night, I will read the Bible. Most of us will say that we love this book, that we think there is life found on these pages, but we give it about a minute and a half a day on average. Simple obedience. Husbands, fathers, single moms. Are you spiritually leading your families? I'll, I'll do it later. <laughs> I'll, I'll do it when I figure out my stuff. <laughs> Simple obedience. I can say it 
it's a lot easier to say it than it is to do it. I know that. At my house, there is a to-do list about a mile and a half long. Really, I mean, I, I cannot process how long my to-do list is at home. It was like, all right, yeah, it'll be great. We'll move to the countryside. We'll have some land and all this. With every inch of land we have, there comes another job to do, another maintenance task, another thing, right? Then I've got the kids and their homework, and we've got all the to-do list at home is unending. It is absolutely unending. So much is undone. Let me ask you, is your spiritual to-do list small? Or really big. (laughs) You don't know what your days look like. You don't know if you've got the time to work on those things that you want to work on. You don't know if you've got the time to spend with your kids right now rather than everything else that you do. You don't know whether or not you have the time to come to Jesus later because you don't know when you're going to go. You don't know. And that's the point James is making here. We don't know. And so it's just plain stupid. Just plain stupid to decide to be in control of your own life because he does know. He does know. He knows it all. He knows exactly what we're going to need 10 years from now or tomorrow. Let me ask you, whose are you? Whose are you? Whose are you? All right, here's some thoughts to finish us up. First, first, if you're sleeping, now's the time to wake up. If you are in control of your life, today, not tomorrow, is in fact the day to make Jesus in control of your life. Okay? If that's been you, whether it's because you've been a Christian and you've been like holding stuff back or you've been walking through not giving your life to him because you want to keep holding on, today is the day. James tells us this. We don't know what tomorrow is. Your vapor might be up today. And it's sort of cliche for pastors to say that. I think it's the first time I've ever said this sort of a thing in a sermon. I think it is. I don't often say, all right, today's the day you could get by a bus. I think I've said that five times a day. I have never said that before. Why am I saying it today? Because James says it over and over again in here. What are you waiting for? You arrogant people. <laughs> Prideful people. You think you can do it better than Jesus? Okay. And I'm not trying to be flippant here. He's either the Lord of our life or he's not. We're either his or we're not. Okay? All right, so what do we do then if, I mean, we got to get better at this, and, and this is all of us. Okay, this is, this is all of us. We're all holding on. We're all thinking about our day. Here's three suggestions I have for you. I'd love to hear from you later this week or next week, whatever, about how this goes from you if you choose to do these three things. Here's the first. When you wake up in the morning, ask God what he wants for your day. When you wake up in your morning, give yourself 15 minutes before you have to do anything else. Get your cup of coffee so your brain starts waking up or your tea or whatever else. Get food if you need that and sit down and say, Lord, what do you want me to do today? And get your pa- a, pa- a pencil or a pen and a pa- piece of paper and write down everything that, that he tells you, <laughs> everything that comes to mind. Right? You, you know you've got work today, all right? You, I, I've got to work today, all right? He probably wants you to do that well, so I'm going to work faithfully today. Oh, and then I've got that guy that I've been talking to. He's going through that divorce. He really needs Jesus. I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask him if I can pray for him. I'm going to tell you, when I start my day, and I don't do it all the time, and I say, Lord, what do you want for my day? Things happen in a way they don't happen on other days. Start your day that way. Lord, what do you want me to do? It might be, in coming to mind, conversations he wants me to have with my wife or with my kids. It might be someone in the church that I'm supposed to reach out to. I did that once. And it was really cool. He was about to kill himself and didn't. Because his name made it to the top of my list. Okay? So that's the first thing. Here's the second thing. Here's the second thing. Ask questions throughout the day. Lord, is there something else you want me to do? Right at noon or on a lunch break or a coffee break, sit down, park yourself and say, all right, Lord, we've done these things. I've I've got those things you told me to do. What else? Okay, see what comes. And then here's the third thing. At the end of the day, debrief with the Lord. 
Go through that list. Say, all right, Lord, I did this. I, I didn't do that, and I'm sorry. I, like, I apologize. You wanted me to do it. I didn't do it. Help me to do it tomorrow if I'm supposed to do it tomorrow. Right? Debrief with the Lord, whether that's in a journal or writing or paper or going for a walk. These three things. And I want to see what happens in the life of our church if we would do these three things. If we would give Jesus every minute of our days and not just a couple hours on Sunday morning. And apparently this way too long sermon. Would you pray with me? God, I just come before you and we come before you and we need you. Lord, we, we try to do it on our own. So many of us have that story of trying to do it on our own and, and yet, Lord, you were there the whole time, ready, willing, and able to do it for us. To bring us to salvation, to bring us to holiness, to bring us into life full of the Spirit, empowering us to do amazing ministry things. I pray, Lord God, that as we have heard this word today, Lord, that you would bring us through the conviction of the Holy Spirit. God, to even come before the communion today, before the Lord's table today, to confess our sins before you, where we've fallen short and where we need, desperately need your help. I pray, Lord, that you would empower us through this time, Lord. And as we come into communion, God, fill us with the passion, the love, the courage, Lord, to be the proclaimers of the gospel. It says that we are when we eat this meal together. God, I also pray if there's anyone in this room who has not given their life to you yet, today would be the day and they would come find me or someone else that they would open up their mouth and speak up and receive salvation today. Because today is the day. We don't know what tomorrow brings. We thank you, Lord, for being sovereign over it all. And we love you, Lord. We come before you and we praise you. Amen.